Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, GoodPods, whatever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As for our social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and I have an email address which is letstalkmicro at outlook.com, where you can send any feedback, any suggestions, they're always welcome and appreciated. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and leave a review if the app allows you to do so. And like I said, you know, if you have any feedback, any suggestions, you can always submit those via email or via social media. And they are definitely welcome and appreciated. And thank you for the support. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode of Let's Talk Micro, please go ahead and do so. It was a great episode about veterinary microbiology with Kelly Maddock and Sarah Gerfro from the North Dakota State University Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. You know, Sarah and Kelly, they are medical laboratory scientists that made the decision to work in a veterinary lab. You know, they really enjoy it. They're very passionate. And they just, you know, they joined the podcast to talk about, you know, what they do. You know, they talk about the training, you know, how long does it take, you know, the qualifications to work in a veterinary lab, how being in MLS was definitely a plus. You know, they talk about the things that you have to keep in mind when you work in cultures, you know, like a environmental factors you know sometimes you know the animals have been dead for a couple days or they have been dead for a while before the owner finds them and and then they decide to send a sample so they have to keep those things in mind when you're working cultures and you know as always you know some organisms you know they're part of the normal flora which you know like for example like pastorella which is normal flora you know in dogs and cats but it's pathogenic in humans so you're going to have to have that mindset that mindset where some organisms you know they're flora of the animals and but overall i think it was a great a great episode learning about you know the testing that they do you know they talked about antimicrobials they talked about the clsi so definitely you know it was a great episode so please check it out if you haven't done so already and today's episode is about malaria you know, we have definitely heard about some cases of malaria in the United States. So it was definitely a good opportunity to do an episode about malaria. And in this episode, I have Dr. Kenneth Gavina from the Indiana University School of Medicine. He was a guest on the Francis Ella episode. Great episode. If you haven't checked it out, please go ahead and do so. And he joins the podcast to talk about malaria. And as always, you know, in the spirit of Let's Talk Micro, we break it down. And, you know, we go over... You know, we go over the disease, you know, we talk about the life cycle, and there are some interesting links in the show notes where I'm putting the link from the CDC for the malaria life cycle. You know, we talk about testing, we talk about prevention, we talk about vaccines. So definitely a great episode. You know, he even talks about the origins of the word malaria. So it was a very informative episode. You know, I love having Dr. Gavina on. He's very passionate, very energetic. So it is a great episode, so I hope you enjoy it. And Dr. Gavina also talks about the, the Future of Malaria Research Symposium, which is taking place Friday, October 13th of this year at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore, 
Merlin. And this is a hybrid event, and I am putting the links on the show notes so you can check it out if this is something that interests you. So let's go ahead and listen to the episode. So on today's episode, we are talking, uh, you know, we're talking micro, but at the same time, this is the topic that since, you know, this this parasite, it is, you know, it's, it's worked on other areas of the lab, you know, due to the nature of the reagents and it involves hematology. So we are basically talking lab. So definitely we are all familiar about this, especially, you know, as, as medical lab scientists, if you, you, you might see it on the news. So I thought it would be good to talk about malaria. So with me today, I have Dr. Kenneth Gavina, and he was a guest on the Francisella episode. If you haven't listened to that one, please go ahead and check it out. So um, Dr. Gavina is going to be talking about malaria today. Dr. Gavina, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hi, Louise. It's great to be back. My pleasure. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, you've been a guest before. So but let's go ahead and start with a quick introduction for those of us that are just tuning in for the first time. Of course. So my name is Ken Gavina. I'm the medical director of clinical microbiology and serology here at Eskenazi Health in Indianapolis. I'm also the director of the Molecular Diagnostics Innovation Group at IU Health and an assistant professor of clinical pathology and laboratory medicine at uh, Indiana University School of Medicine. I, uh, I completed my PhD in medical microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta in Canada. Uh, under my former advisor, uh, Dr. Stephanie Yano, who is just an amazingly brilliant uh, global health scientist. And there we worked on developing molecular point of care diagnostics for malaria and also investigated the clinical impacts of malaria in pregnancy. Well, definitely great. Great to have you back. And, you know, the audience, you know, you can cannot see this, but I like, you know, Dr. Gavina, actually, you know, he has like a Yeti microphone. So that's always amazing. I love it when when I'm talking to someone and they come like full on prepared. So that's, that's great. Um, so yeah, let's go ahead and, and talk about malaria, you know, just in the spirit of let's talk micro, we'd really like to, you know, break it down, right. Make it as simple as we can. So let's go ahead and go over, you know, like species, you know, transmission and, and things like that. Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, I wanted to thank you for having me for this topic as, um, malaria is definitely one of my first, uh, my first loves, uh, in the world of microbiology. And to try and get some of our listeners as excited about it as I am, I thought I'd start with some fun facts, maybe, um, about malaria. And the first one that kind of comes to mind is that it's actually one of the oldest diseases known to mankind. Uh, it's been documented as far back as 27, uh, 2700 BC in historical Chinese medical writing, like the Neiqing, uh, and even like the Greek doctrine of fevers by Hippocrates in 4th century BC. In fact, the name malaria itself uh, actually originates from 18th century Italian, the words mala and area, which directly translates to bad air. So this is something that they proposed before they obviously knew it became, it was a, a vector-borne um, disease. But uh, malaria is, uh, it's caused by the protozoan parasite Plasmodium genus. Um, there are hundreds of species in the genus, but really there are five main players uh, in regards to human infections. And these five um, species are Plasmodium falciparum, Vivax, Ovale, Malariae, and Nolazi. There are a couple other lesser known Plasmodium species that are mostly zoonotic, and there's been some spillover events. Um, so one that's happened fairly recently in the last few years is one known as Plasmodium simium, um, which is highly related to Plasmodium vivax. And Plasmodium simium is known for infecting um, New World monkeys in Brazil. So I thought that's just a cool little tidbit that I'd, I'd share as well. 
Um, talking about the transmission, so um, as we, as most of us are probably well aware that uh, malaria is a vector-borne disease, um, and it's transmitted by the female Anopheles mosquito. So when an infected mosquito goes for a blood meal, uh, the parasites are injected into the animal or the human host. Um, but of course, there are other rare transmissions um, that have been reported and include things such as uh, blood transfusions, um, organ transplants, and even the sharing of needles or syringes um, that have been contaminated with infected, uh, infected blood. Um, another transmission route is uh, congenital, uh, which, spoiler alert, we may talk about a little bit more later uh, in this episode. Yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely touch on it. Um, so as far as uh, what about uh, endemic areas? Where can we, you know, what, what areas can we typically find malaria? Yeah, so malaria is one of the leading causes of parasitic disease in the world. Um, there's an estimated 250 million cases globally and uh, almost an estimated 620,000 deaths in 2021 alone. Um, these are the most recent stats um, that were published by the 2022 uh, World Health Organization Malaria Report. Uh, and probably the most alarming statistic, but maybe not too surprising, is that Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for over 95% of these cases and deaths, with almost 80% of these deaths in these regions um, attributable to children under the age of five. So a very, very, uh, a very serious uh, disease, of course. Um, but despite this, we still do see endemic areas of malaria outside of Africa as well. And examples of this include um, Southeast Asia, um, as well as a little bit closer to home here in the United States uh, in Latin America. Um, I'm sure have you seen in the news that uh, we now have some locally transmitted cases of malaria here in the United States as well, which is quite alarming. Um, and I think also speaks volume to um, the climate change and how this is directly tied into um, zoonosis and um, uh, and human disease as well. Um, one interesting fun fact um, is that while Plasmodium falciparum accounts for the overwhelming majority um, of all Plasmodium uh, human infections, Plasmodium vivax is actually the most globally distributed species um, of human malaria across the world and accounts for more than 50% of all malaria causing cases outside of Africa. And the reason for this, um, we can talk about this in a little bit more detail too, is it's due to the parasite's tolerance to um, cooler temperatures. So um, one of the things that's involved in the malaria life cycle is schizogeny. And Plasmodium vivax um, has the ability to withstand cooler temperatures. We're talking maybe 18 um, to, to 21, 25 environmental degrees Celsius. Um, so we see it a lot more prevalent in temperate climates compared to Plasmodium falciparum. Thank you for that. And I like, you know, thank you for the trivia as well. I think that's something that right that, that an educator has that when you're talking about something, you like to provide as much information as you can. And and I'm sure the audience and I do, you know, we appreciate it. So, um, you know, we can definitely and, and for the listeners, I will put the CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention. You know, they have a great visuals about the cycle of the malaria. And I'm definitely going to put the link there on the show notes. But let's go ahead and, and talk about it. Can you? Talk a little bit about the life cycle. Of course. So I'm glad that you mentioned the uh, CDC reference for the malaria life cycle link. I'm sure all of our listeners have seen it on the website or in a textbook or some other place. And I think we can all agree that it uh, initially it is quite uh, intimidating. It is a quite complex life cycle. Albeit, I think it's a it's also a very beautiful life cycle to look at too when you when you understand what's going on. 
Um, to simplify it, uh, the way I like to think of the malaria life cycle is I like to think of it as two different stages um, containing three different cycles. So you have your human or the asexual stage of the parasite, which contains two different cycles, the pre-erythrocytic cycle and the erythrocytic cycle. And then you have the mosquito or the sexual stage, and this contains the sporogonic cycle of the parasite. Um, so if we kind of start of how the infection begins as like the beginning of our life cycle, we start with our uh, hungry, hungry, infected Anopheles mosquito. Um, and you have these formed sporozoites that are within the salivary glands of the mosquito. Um, they get injected into the host whenever the mosquito goes for a blood meal. And we're talking about a few hundred sporozoites every time it feeds. Um, so this is the start of the pre-erythrocytic cycle. And these spor sporozoites, um, they break through the endothelial barrier, entering the bloodstream, and then they eventually migrate their way towards the liver to infect hepatocytes. Within the hepatocyte in the liver, um, the parasite undergoes nuclear replication, eventually forming a mature liver schizont. And in the case of falciparum, uh, this can take anywhere between a period of five to seven days and result in schizonts that contain several thousand merozoites. And these merozoites are individual budded um, parasite cells. It's worth noting, though, that during this pre-erythrocytic cycle, patients are generally asymptomatic. Um, and even more important worth mentioning is that not all sporozoites that enter the hepatic cell will immediately become a liver stage schizont. Um, in the case of Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium ovale, uh, an alternative developmental pathway are the formation of these parasite forms known as hypnozoites. What's really interesting about these hypnozoites is that they can remain uh, dormant for several weeks, months, or even years before reactivating and becoming schizonts. And the mechanism behind the development into dormancy or the activation of them is not really well understood. Uh, I've seen a case where we had a patient who presented to the emergency department um, with suspicion of influenza. This was in January at the time, um, but ended up being diagnosed with Plasmodium vivax. And the patient hadn't left the country in over eight months. So it was a particularly fascinating case that we came across. Um, but kind of going back to the life cycle, you now have these um, liver schizons which rupture. And when they rupture, they release these several merozoites into the bloodstream. Um, and then the parasites go on to infect red blood cells. So this is the start of that second cycle, the erythrocytic cycle. And it's at this point we start to see many of the classical symptoms of malaria, such as fevers, chills, and night sweats. Once the merozoites are in the red blood cells, um, they once again undergo asexual development, um, starting as an immature trophozoite, or as what many of us refer to known as the ring stage parasite. And as the parasite continues to feed off the hemoglobin and grow, it further develops into a mature trophozoite and then eventually becomes a schizont, um, which depending on the species of plasmodium can look very different um, and contain, can contain anywhere between eight to 32 individual uh, merozoite buds. Um, so when these infected red blood cells lyse, um, the merozoites are then released back into the bloodstream, um, allowing for infection of new red blood cells. And then the erythrocytic cycle continues. Um, one thing that's uh, worth noting is that a subset of these parasites will cease asexual reproduction uh, and instead will then differentiate into the sexual stage of the parasite known as the gametocyte. Um, you can have male and female gametocytes, and these gametocytes act as a means of continuing the parasite life cycle, as they can be picked up by another female Anopheles mosquito when that mosquito goes for a blood meal. 
Um, and then they further undergo development in the midgut of the mosquito, eventually becoming a sporozoid containing oocyst in the salivary gland of the mosquito. And then you had the cycle beautifully starting all over again. Wow, that's fascinating. And you know, as you were, you were talking about that case, and it makes me think so they came with a suspecting maybe like flu and then you know, you go through your standard uh, laboratories and maybe get like a, uh, you know, get a CBC and then you're doing a differential and it's like, wait a minute, you know, it's like, is this, this malaria here? So that's, it's always amazing the things that we see and how sometimes, you know, we, we can be surprised, right? It's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It was particularly odd again, because not only was it in the middle of January when we we encountered this patient, but this was also kind of in the prairies in Canada. So you can imagine, you know, January in Canada, malaria isn't exactly going to be at the top of your list for differential for fevers. Wow, indeed. Um, okay, so you talk a little bit sometimes, you know, about patients, you know, at some stage symptomatic. So let's, can we talk about symptoms and, and you know, what, what diseases, what do you see with malaria? Yeah, of course. Uh, the manifestation of disease and the symptoms of malaria is, is very broad, actually, ranging anywhere between like asymptomatic infection to severe malaria. And severe malaria can include multiple organ failure. You can see cases of cerebral malaria, um, and in the worst case scenario, even death. So based on the life cycle that I described, you can probably figure out that many of these clinical symptoms of malaria um, are due to the destruction of red blood cells. So some of these symptoms, again, include fever, chills, um, headaches, sweating, dizziness, myalgia, and several others. But there are other mechanisms of pathogenicity as well. And one of them is the production of uh, hemozoin. So hemozoin is a byproduct of digested hemoglobin of the red blood cells. Um, these hemozoins might sometimes be referred to as malarial pigment, um, which you can actually see sometimes when you're doing a uh, blood smear looking for malaria but they act as a blood toxin. And these can also accumulate in organs such as the spleen and liver, which can give you um, symptomologies of um, splenomegaly or hepatomegaly. Um, fever in malaria tends to follow a paroxysmal or a cyclical pattern. So you might've heard the terms tertian or quartan fever um, or a fever that appears every three to four days respectively. Uh, and this is due to the amount of time schizogeny takes. Uh, so in Vivax and Ovalley, um, this typically uh, is uh, 48 hours-ish, um, hence the term tertian fever. And then in malaria, um, schizogeny takes roughly 72 hours, hence quartan fever. Plasmodium falciparum, on the other hand, typically does not follow any distinct periodicity. Um, and it kind of tends to have its own agenda and does what it, wa does what it wants. Um, falciparum in particular is really associated with severe disease um, as it's capable of producing much higher parasitemias than some of the other species, but will also sequester and uh, form these clusters of infected red blood cells. Um, these sequestrations and alterations on the surface of the red blood cells will cause them to become really sticky and cytoadhere to each other and blood vessels. And what this ends up doing is it causes an obstruction of the microcirculation. So this results in the dysfunction of organs. And most notably, and probably the most severe example we hear of is cerebral malaria. That would be a great example of this kind of mechanism behind it. Okay, uh, thank you for that. And, you know, we kind of hinted a little bit and we talked about it, but, you know, and we have chatted about this uh, offline. So I know, you know, you mentioned that you studied, you know, uh, malaria and, and, and pregnancy. And so let's go ahead and talk about that. What can you tell us about malaria and pregnancy? 
Yeah. So what a lot of people may not know, um, particularly because we don't see a malaria a lot here in the United States, um, although that may change, um, but it is, it's a very serious congenital infection. Um, in regions where malaria is endemic, the general recommendation is usually some sort of combination of antenatal screening for malaria um, and intermittent preventative treatment in pregnancy, sometimes referred to as IPTP. Uh, this is usually going to be with the drug um, sulfadoxine pyrimethamine. So malaria in pregnancy poses a very significant risk to both the mother and the fetus, um, and it can lead to adverse pregnancy outcomes such as low birth weight, preterm birth, uh, maternal and neonatal anemia, um, or fetal uh, mortality by stillbirth or spontaneous abortion. Congenital malaria, uh, it can result in significant inflammatory responses or damage to the placenta. And the, the mechanism behind this is due to placental sequestration. So similar to what I described with falciparum is that um, these infected red blood cells will bind to the placenta and the intervillous spaces, which provides the parasite with a means of immune evasion, but also leads to um, inflammatory responses and damage in the placenta. What's really fascinating about this, though, is that it appears that there's only a subset of plasmodium parasites that are capable of expressing this gene, and the gene is called VAR2-CSA, and it's a surface antigen that presents on um, infected red blood cells that cause placental malaria. So they're, they're binding to the surface of these intervillous spaces and in the placenta, uh, and they only express the VAR2-CSA antigen during pregnancy. So these parasites are very, very clever in terms of their ways to kind of adapt within the system and ways to avoid the immune system. Wow, that's very interesting. Only expressed during pregnancy. Okay. Um, so now, right, you know, we're we're laboratorians. So let's talk about testing, right? At the very least, and if you're in the audience, and you know, I mentioned that in, in hematology, or you might be, you know used to looking at the slide and, you know, typically, right, we use terms like, you know, like thin smear, thick smear, and then you have sometimes, you know, like two or three technologists looking at the slides and everyone is doing a count. Um, so what type of testing is it's out there? You know, I know like as molecular makes, you know, huge leaps and bounds. And so I've seen antigen. So let's talk about testing. Yeah. So to this day, microscopy still remains the gold standard. Um, for malaria diagnosis. Um, and patient blood samples are, you know, to, to work them up, they're added to a microscopic slide, uh, and we create what you just referred to as blood smears. Typically for malaria workup, we uh, this is going to vary based to institution, but they recommend at least two types of blood smears, two of each. Um, and the two types of blood smears are going to be a thick smear and a thin smear. So a thick smear, um, you essentially add your blood to the middle, and then you can use like an applicator stick or the corner of another slide to create a small circular area, usually one to two centimeters in diameter. And then you allow this smear to fully dry and lice. And this takes several hours. So it is a stat test that we generally try to get malaria results back out to our uh, providers. But um, what a lot of them don't understand is how long the process actually takes. Never mind counting the fields, but even just preparing the slides does take a significant amount of time. Um, once you have that completely dried slide, um, you then would stain it using a GIMSA, right, or field stain. Um, and then this is going to give you a highly concentrated smear that gives you the advantage of having improved sensitivity to try and find some of these parasites in the blood. 
In contrast, on a thin smear, you would add your drop of blood to maybe one end of the slide, and then you would kind of use another glass slide to push or glide it across the slide. And the idea behind this is you're trying to make one thin monolayer of red blood cells. Um, these slides are going to be dried and fixed and then stained again in, in a similar process that you would with the thick smear. Um, but what this will allow for is it's going to give you a better resolution of the parasite morphology. Um, so this is helpful in being able to determine the species of plasmodium that you're dealing with, um, or even looking for mixed infections, which are becoming um, more and more common depending on the region uh, that you're in. So typically for blood smears, uh, we'll start with the thick smear um, for the workup because this is going to be more concentrated, have a higher sensitivity. And there are guidelines that are set up by the World Health Organization and other governing bodies that they recommend screening a minimum of 100 high-powered fields before ruling out a negative thick smear. We can then reflex to the thin smear to try and determine the species or see if it's a mixed infection or not. One critical component of uh, working up a malaria smear is to be able to report out the percent parasitemia. And this can be done, <clears throat> excuse me, this can be done on both the thick smear, um, where you count the number of parasites in relations to the white blood cells, um, or what's more commonly done on the thin smear, where you count the number of parasites in relation to the red blood cells. Um, so with the thick smears, they recommend counting upwards of to 1,000 white blood cells um, or anywhere between 500 to 2,000 red blood cells. So you can imagine that that's, that's a lot of fields that you're screening through, and you can very easily get um, fatigue um, just from staring and working up all these slides because one patient, you're looking at at least four slides. Um, so as you mentioned, we constantly have other colleagues um, bouncing ideas, seeing what they see, getting a fresh set of eyes definitely helps. It's, it's a very labor-intensive process, but again, to this day, still remains uh, the gold standard for testing. Now, something that you mentioned was uh, molecular diagnostics. Um, so examples would be PCR, the most common one. Um, surprisingly, though, there are not any commercially available um, PCR-based diagnostics for malaria. There is one test. Um, it's a isothermal method. Uh, it's LAMP, so loop-mediated uh, loop isothermal amplification. And it's by Alethia. So it's the Alethia malaria LAMP assay. Um, this has been, I believe, CE marked approved. So for distribution in Europe and I think in Canada as well, but has not quite yet received um, FDA approval. So it's still not available to us here in the United States. Um, some larger reference laboratories will offer uh, PCR testing for malaria, but it's usually going to be some kind of laboratory-developed test um, that they made in-house. Um, one really cool technology that I think is in the process of trying to get uh, FDA approval is called the AmpliQuick uh, Malaria Biosynex. So it's a real-time PCR directly from blood. So it's nice because it completely eliminates the extraction component and simplifies the process for the operator to be able to just run it directly from the, from the blood specimen. Um, more traditionally, uh, aside from microscopy, like we, we think about rapid diagnostic tests, and these are going to be usually your antigen-based testing. Um, so the one big one is the Binax Now malaria, which is a lateral flow-based um, RDT. And this test is capable of discriminating Plasmodium falciparum from the other species. However, it doesn't tell us what the other species is, if that's the case. It could be ovale, it could be vivax, it could be malariae. Um, in which case we would still need to reflex either to microscopy or PCR molecular methods to determine what the species is, um, because we would want to know 
if it's Vivax or Ovali, to potentially get rid of those um, dormant stage hypnozoids for, for um, radical treatment. Um, the way the test works is it's an antigen-based test that looks for um, the protein uh, HRP2 or histidine-rich protein 2 um, that's specific to uh, the, the plasmodium parasite. However, what we're seeing now too is there are mutations um, in that antigen where there's a bit of a dropout. So what we're seeing is false negatives on certain um, strains of plasmodium that are being missed by that binax down malaria. So something to keep in mind for consideration as well is it's a great screening tool, but in most cases you still may want a reflex to um, traditional microscopy or another means as well. Yeah, and I think like in, in my facility, I'm not because I wasn't involved in it, but I think they kind of play a little bit with it, with that Binax now, and, and they were not really like too satisfied with the results they were getting, and they just kind of stopped it for now. But I remember seeing it now. And for those of us that are, you know, that are listening, those of you that are listening, you know, Binax now, and it's not a, a plug or anything, um, there's no relationship to the podcast, but they do, they manufacture a lot of tests. So you're definitely familiar, even if you don't work in a microbiology lab and you might have like a quick rapid section, you know, they do like the Legionella, uh, strep, strep pneumo. So there's a lot of tests. So everyone pretty much in the MLS community, it's familiar with one Binax now product or another. Um, SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> yeah, right. Definitely. And uh, I like what you mentioned about the, that's intensive and, and, and to put a visual, yeah, especially when you're in, in hematology and you're a large facility with large volume and you're doing differentials, you know, for eight hours, it can be, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work. So that that's a, it's a time consuming test. Absolutely. Okay. So now that we went over the testing, uh, what about prevention and treatment? Oh, I guess, I, I guess I want to give one other plug for maybe another testing method. Um, it's not really uh, novel in the sense of the technology that's there, but maybe how it's being applied. Um, a lot of these tests are still very much kind of research use only or in development, but there's a lot of cool point of care molecular diagnostic tests that are being developed right now. So one of them is a saliva-based uh, PCR test that can be done in the field on a handheld instrument. And the idea behind the saliva test is it actually looks specifically for gametocytes. Um, and this is more so for a transmission or an epidemiological screening test as opposed to a clinical test. So it's kind of cool because what you can do is you can screen these people for uh, like plasmodium gametocytes and you can see whether or not they are potential vectors for mosquitoes to transmit the disease. I thought that was really neat. Another one that I came across um, was a wax based, uh, a wax or a paper based PCR test. Um, actually, no, you know what? It was an isothermal-based test where you take the blood and it's actually directly added to this paper wax microfluidic chip. And when you add your reagent, you actually fold the paper and wax together, and then you can put it directly onto a heating plate, which then kind of cycles through the reaction. So this is, we're talking about something that's really, really kind of experimental, but from a cost perspective and usability purpose in the field, um, it seems highly amenable because you really only need like a water bath or a, a heat block to do this. And a materials, uh, from a material standpoint, you're using wax and paper as opposed to these very um, sometimes expensive plastics, um, um, microfluidic chips that some people use. So I, I wanted to just mention that really quickly because I got really excited when I was reading it. No, no, thank you. About, thank you for that. And uh, are those like, a, is that being worked on like here in the States or other parts of the world, as far as you know? 
it sounds like the two groups that I saw um, were collaborative researchers. So obviously you're going to have one site um, kind of in a malaria endemic region where they can do the applied side of it to be able to test it in the field. And then a more developmental side. Um, I've seen some places based in Europe. There's also some places based in the United States um, where they kind of design the assay and they have the engineering to do it. And then they bring it out for like their uh, collaborators in the field to trial. So it's a, it's, it's a great way um, to further kind of reach out to other colleagues in different areas of microbiology because um, you have some instances where you don't have the resources to be able to develop it, but on the flip side, you don't have the use case or the need to be able to apply it. So um, it's kind of the best of both worlds and we're all helping each other. Yeah, that that is great. And now in, a, in an era where we're so connected, you know, it's, it's so much easier to do those types of, you know, collaborations. Um, so, yeah, so let's let's go ahead and talk about prevention and, and treatment. So prevention is always going to be heavily reliant on vector and transmission control. So the, the best thing you can do to stop malaria is to just not get it in the first place. So uh, this will typically be vector control. So the use of bed nets um, is probably the single most effective um form of trying to prevent malaria transmission. So insecticide-treated bed nets, the use of DDT or DEET or other insecticides. Um, however, that's becoming a less efficient method as well, because not only are the parasites um, evolving and adapting, but the mosquitoes are evolving and adapting. So we're starting to see mosquitoes um, that are becoming resistant to certain and commercial insecticides that we use as well. So it's typically going to be some kind of combination uh, of multiple um, uh, Inter, uh, interventions to try and prevent malaria. As far as treatment goes, uh, oral chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine um, are often an effective treatment for plasmodium infections, um, but only when they're not chloroquine resistant. And we're seeing a huge increase um, in the prevalence of chloroquine resistant uh, plasmodium infections. So in cases when they are chloroquine resistant, there are a couple options that we do have. Um, the preferred option is um, artemethylumifantrin. Um, a second one is a commercial drug known as malarone. So this is a tobacone uh, proguanol. And then you can also use combination therapies like uh, quinine and a, and a tetracycline, like doxycycline. Um, I'll plug in another fun fact for this, is that uh, quinine, um, you can actually find it in one of your uh, you're probably at your local bar in a beverage of tonic water. So tonic water does contain quinine in it. So I actually, my, my advisor, when I, when I finished my PhD, she bought me a shirt that said uh, gin and tonic because malaria is everywhere. And I, I still wear that shirt quite regularly. <laughs> That's great. And yeah, that, that, that is the, uh, um, a fact that I, as I was, I, I remember reading about that. Uh, yeah. That, about the, the gin and tonic and the tonic water. Um, so as far as, you know, any, any vaccines that you know of? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> with the, with the tonic water though, you, you would have to drink liters of it to reach therapeutic levels. So you would either have a really good night or a really bad night um, to reach therapeutic levels through gin and tonics. Um, for vaccines, uh, the, now malaria elimination and vaccine development has been a major challenge um, for public health and healthcare for decades. Um, there's been over a hundred different registered malaria vaccine clinical trials since 2000 alone. I know that probably uh, pales into comparison to some of the vaccine trials that have been done recently with SARS-CoV-2, um, but malaria is a completely different animal. Um, it's a lot more complex to try and create a vaccine to target because there's so many different 
um, stages in the life cycle to target. There's it's it's a lot more complex of an organism. A lot of great ideas have been tried, um, but have failed um, and failed spectacularly. But we've learned a lot from them. Um, many of these, uh, the vaccines that I'm gonna uh, that that have been developed, um, some of them will target the sporozoid stage. So kind of when the sporozoid. Um, enters the body for its first time and tries to make its way to the liver. And this this is a good strategy because the idea is if you can stop it in its tracks before it reaches the liver, then you won't have any symptoms whatsoever. You can kind of nip it in the bud. The issue with that is that even if you have one sporozoid breakthrough, that's reason enough and that's cause enough to cause full-blown malaria because that sporozoid will make its way to the hepatocyte and potentially um, go through the process of creating several hundred to several thousand merozoids. So it, it needs to be a hundred percent effective. So you can understand some of the difficulty that comes to that when you're trying to design a vaccine. Um, there are quite a bit of vaccines that have been designed, but there's only been one vaccine um, that's been uh, licensed. And uh, this is known as the muscurix, uh, or more commonly referred to as the RTSS vaccine. Um, and this has been manufactured by GSK. It's been licensed by the EU. Um, there's been pilot studies done in Ghana, Kenya, Malawi. Um, and I think they've actually introduced it to several other countries um, in Africa as well. And the vaccine itself is a recombinant or a subunit vaccine um, that targets the liver stage of the parasite. And it presents a major protein or an antigen uh, called CSP, um, and it's conjugated to, um, and I, I don't know the exact reason why, somebody much more brilliant than I can probably explain it, but uh, it's conjugated to the surface antigen of hepatitis B. Now, when this vaccine was first introduced, um, it actually showed very good and promising um, efficacy. So uh, the original trials showed nearly 70% um, uh, efficacy in the first six months. But then when they looked at additional trials, um, looking at a three versus a four dose regimen, um, they found that vaccine um, efficacy just continued to decline, um, even as low as zero to 15%. So... I think there's a lot of promise. I think some protection is better than none, um, especially when you're going to be looking at these really hot populations. So particularly sub-Saharan Africa, children under the age of five, um, that's kind of going to get your best bang for your buck. Uh, one new kid on the block, though, is, a, is another vaccine called um, R21. And this was designed by a group out of Oxford. And it's very similar to the RTSS vaccine, um, that it's based on that same CSP um, antigen, but they actually have a bigger chunk of it. So rather than just a small portion, it's slightly larger, um, and it does not use um, the conjugated hepatitis B surface antigens. Um, but it, it's shown, um, initial trials and studies have shown 77% vaccine um, efficacy over 12 months. So this is very exciting news as well. And um, I think the World Health Organization is really trying to get this as part of a, the pilot program um, to get it started and distributed uh, in Africa. So a lot of good stuff coming, a lot of promising stuff. Yeah, indeed. Sounds like it. So yeah, stay tuned. Um, so is there anything else that you want to add? I know that. And, and before we kind of uh, come to a close, I know that, you know, you wanted to talk about this and, and on behalf of the audience, you know, we thank you for doing this and, you know, taking the time and just taking some of your time and, and talking about this. You know, I think it's been great, very informational. Sometimes, you know, with malaria, we touch on it in school and maybe some of us might not, you know, work with it again. So I think this has been great. But um, is there anything else that you want to add? Yeah, I think I think the first one is 
there, there are two points, I guess. And I guess the first one is to kind of re really reiterate that how much, uh, like, like global environmental change is impacting healthcare. So I think initially we, we had seen that, um, the cases in Texas and Florida, which is a little bit more in the Southern United States, a little bit of a warmer climate. So something that seems like it's a little bit more likely that if malaria were to return to the United States, that it would start there. But then the fact that um, the state of Maryland had just recently reported a case of uh, Plasmodium 2, and they actually released a um, HAN yesterday saying that the species was falciparum, not Vivax. So this kind of goes against um, the, the usual consensus that, yeah, Vivax stays in the cooler temperate climates. Falciparum tends to stay in tropical hot climates. Well, we have falciparum in Maryland. Um, and I don't know how many people fly to Maryland for their tropical weather, but it, it's it's here. It's among us. So I think that's a very serious thing for us to be aware of. Um, and we very well may in the future be seeing these increased um, sporadic cases in local transmission of malaria, um, where we also may need to begin implementing um, prevention and intervention strategies again within the United States. And I think the, the second point I wanted to bring, and uh, as a disclosure, I have no direct involvement or affiliations with them, but anyone who might be interested, um, Johns Hopkins University, they hold a Future of Malaria Research Symposium every year. Uh, and this year it falls on Friday, October 13th. So um, if you're into spooky things or superstition, take that, take that for what you will. But it's a it's a hybrid conference, and that means that you can attend it both virtually or in person if you're if you're in Baltimore, and it's free. Um, so if, if malaria or the research in malaria or kind of what's going on in malaria is an area of interest to you, I'd, I'd highly encourage you to check it out. Um, I've attended it many years ago when I was still a trainee and it was fantastic. It's actually hosted um, by the trainees, um, so they they really do it just for the love and like the. Um, promotion of science. So I, I can give you the link for that, Louise, if you if you wanted to share it in the podcast as well. Uh, yes, please do. And I'll go ahead and put it on the on the show notes, along with the link to the CDC. So everyone can have that nice visual to the life cycle. But yeah, that is great. And, and you said that it is free. It's free. Yeah. Okay, so definitely, if, if, if you have some time and, you know, take advantage of that, uh, you know, there's something a lot of conferences, you know, they tend to be you know, on the pricey side. Of, so if it's a free event, you're in the area, or maybe you have some time and you're willing to do it. Yeah, go ahead and do so by all means. But I'll, I'll put it on the show notes. So yeah, I'll definitely accept that link. Well, you know, uh, once again, Dr. Gavina, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to come in into Let's Talk Micro. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about malaria. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. As always, you know, thank you for the support. Please continue downloading episodes. I appreciate it. And if, if you have any feedback, any suggestions, you know, those are definitely welcome. Very important, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. You know, we do such great work. And stay tuned. Great things coming your way. So, as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, 
continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.